Welcome to the Nurse and Midwife Support Podcast, Your Health Matters. I'm Mark Aiken, the podcast host. I'm the Stakeholder Engagement Manager with Nurse and Midwife Support, and I'm a registered nurse. Nurse and Midwife Support is the national support service for nurses, midwives, and students. The service is anonymous, confidential, and free, and you can call us anytime you need support. 1-800-667-877 or contact us via the website nmsupport.org.au Trigger alert! This podcast contains information regarding suicide which may be unsettling for some people. This is a two-part podcast series on the sensitive topic of suicide in relation to nurses and midwives. The two podcasts are just over an hour in total. If you find any of the podcasts difficult to listen to, please take a break and reach out for support. Nurse and Midwife Support, 1800 667 877 or Lifeline, 1311114. On part one of the podcast series, I talked to John Tyler, Manager, Specialist Clinical Services, Turning Point Eastern Health. John is an experienced social worker with extensive experience supporting those at risk of suicide and teams impacted by the suicide of a colleague. John and I discuss suicide and support for nurses, midwives and students at risk of suicide and following the death by suicide of a colleague. We explore signs of suicidality, risk factors for suicide and what you could do if you suspect a friend or colleague is at risk of suicide. We discuss the range of emotions experienced by people after the suicide of a colleague, family member or friend, and what support is available. We also discuss the impact of grief following suicide on the people connected to the person who dies as a result of suicide, and the importance of communication and support. We acknowledge that this is a difficult topic for many. If either of these podcasts raises issues for you, please reach out. On part two of the podcast series, I talked to Paul McNamara, mental health nurse, consultant liaison psychiatry service, Cairns Hospital, and nurse educator and digital citizen. Paul and I recorded the podcast on World Mental Health Day 2019 at the International Mental Health Nurses Conference. We discuss his extensive work supporting and educating people about the risk factors related to suicide, stigma, mental health, resources, support, and his blog on suicide on his website, Meta4RN. As Paul states, suicide is a complex matter that does not lend itself to easy understanding or simple solutions. However, something we know about health professionals is that they know that there are mental health services and supports. Health professionals know that these services can be accessed by people who are feeling suicidal. The data suggests that health professionals have an actual or perceived barrier to accessing these existing supports. And he states, I wonder what that barrier is. We explore what that is in this podcast. Please listen and let us know what you think. Mark at nmsupport.org.au Please access Nurse and Midwife Support if you are worried about suicide or any issue this sensitive topic raises for you. 1-800-667-877 
or via the website nmsupport.org.au. My guest today is Jonathan Tyler, Manager, Specialist at Clinical Services, Training Point Eastern Health. Hello and welcome, John. Hello, how are you? Good, thanks. Thanks so much for being our guest today to discuss this very important topic. Today we will discuss suicide and support for nurses, midwives and students at risk of suicide and following the death by suicide of a colleague. John, please tell our listeners about your background, your expertise in suicide prevention and suicide work and support and your current role. Thank you, Mark, for having me today on what is a very important issue for us to have discussions about. In terms of my background, I am a social worker and I spent around 15 years working in a range of regional and metropolitan tertiary mental health services, both in adult and um, child and youth mental health, followed by transitioning into working at Turning Point and becoming a manager where I've had the privilege of being the manager who has been working with a whole range of nurse and midwife colleagues in developing and implementing the nurse and midwife support service. Thanks, John. And you're actually the overall manager for nurse and midwife support. So it's great on our nurse and midwife support podcast to have you on as a guest. Thank you very much. And we've just celebrated our third birthday. And uh, hopefully you've all seen our uh, video and we're incredibly grateful to the nurses and midwives throughout Australia for your support and for your contribution to the success of the service. Thank you. And it's been really important for me. I've been very lucky to have some, over the years, some amazing primarily psychiatric nurses who've both trained me and given me opportunities in learnings and skills, career skills that I will be eternally grateful. So, um... It's been a wonderful experience and it's been wonderful to work with such an amazing group of um, nurses and midwives. Thanks, John. I'm sure nurses and midwives listening to this podcast will really appreciate those kind words. In 2016, a retrospective study was released titled Suicide by Health Professionals, a Retrospective Mortality Study in Australia, 2001 to 2012 by researchers led by Deakin University's Dr. Alison Milner. The results of the national study were disturbing as they revealed that the rate of suicide for female nurses and midwives was almost three times higher than females in other professions. The suicide rate for male nurses and midwives was almost twice as high as males in other professions. The study states that some of the reasons for the higher rate of suicide by female and male nurses is the particularly demanding nature of the job. Contributing factors such as long hours and work-life balance play a prominent role, with anxiety also a potential risk factor for suicide. John, what are your thoughts about this? Yeah, it's a very powerful um, Dr Milner and her co-researchers published in relation to health professionals and primarily... You know, when it comes to those psychosocial stresses they discuss, you know, um, about work-family conflict, long hours, high job demands, you know, the fear of making mistakes at work, as well as, you know, the association of, of these psychosocial um, job stresses, which commonly can have a relationship with anxiety and depression, 
it is of no surprise of these rates of, of suicide and it is really concerning. You know, you add as well as that, you know, the exposure risk of trauma and vicarious trauma from patients and their families as well. It's really important for nurses and midwives and, and the organisations that support nurses and midwives to appreciate, you know, the complexity of the work they do and look at the ways in which we can work on our, our, our health and our, our cultural health to prevent as much as possible this from occurring. John, what are the signs of suicide in a person that um, we could be open to or mindful of, um, of seeing? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting space in terms of trying to find you know, a checklist or, or have something that can really help us to understand when someone is presenting suicidal. It's really important from in our discussions is to really discuss that this uniqueness of each individual who experiences these thoughts. And unless we can have an environment whereby a person feels comfortable and has that capacity to talk about their thoughts and feelings, it can be really difficult for us to notice those signs. In terms of mental health as risk assessments, when we look at sort of signs, we in my career, we used to sort of break it down into three factors. It, it was the ideation. So, um, you know, the, the thoughts that a person may have in terms of suicide, the plan, so understand what may that plan be, and the intent. And within that, you can really encapsulate, you know, what's going on. But without those discussions, it's really difficult. Beyond Blue summarises nicely um, some of the behavioural and physical changes that um, someone can present with, you, you know, talking about some of the non-verbal indicators, maybe social withdrawal, um, drop in mood, disinterest in maintaining their own personal hygiene appearance, reckless behaviour, you know, poor diet, rapid weight loss, being distracted, anger, insomnia, alcohol and drug abuse, and giving away, you know, sentimental or, or possessions, and some of the indirect verbal expressions, maybe hopelessness, failing to see a future, believing they are a burden to others, saying they feel worthless or alone, and or talking about their death or wanting to die. But this isn't an exhaustive list. It's And often we, we have to be guided by our own instinct of knowing, you know, knowing the person, being aware of there's these unique changes, or just being familiar with what's going on. So it's a really tricky situation and it, it is no surprise that you when when we have the awful situation of um, someone dying in terms of suicide that often people are left surprised and and, and and in terms of it occurring so it's really tricky and what are the risk factors for suicide John once again you know they're, they're numerous you know there's evidence there that's to discuss things like previous suicide attempts, history of substance abuse, history of mental health conditions like depression, anxiety, um, bipolar or PT, um, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, situational events, be it relationship problems, be it conflict with your family or it may even be in terms of a case of um, nurses and midwives conflict within work, legal and disciplinary problems and, and as well as that, other sort of risk factors can be the access to harmful means such as medication. There are some common themes as well in terms of risks, in terms of recent death or, or suicide of close friends um, 
ongoing exposure to bullying behaviour and physical illness and or disability can be. And when you when you talk about risk factors as well, it's important. Once again, you know, it's it's being cautious and saying it's very very complex and the factors influencing someone. It can be very various and, you know, it, it may be none of these things are present. It may be other things that we haven't included. The other thing in terms of risk, you know, we talk about risk, but it's also about looking at protective factors, you know, the different things that may reduce the likelihood of a suicidal behaviour and to improve and improve a person's ability to cope um, with different circumstances. So, um, you know, social connectiveness, having a bit peers that they can trust and talk with um, family members, a, a child, all these different factors, you know, motivation to for an event. It, it can be quite complex to um, quite a simple um, protective factor that these factors also have an influence in terms of a person and suicide. Thanks, John. Lots of those have observed um, friends or colleagues um, with some of those risk factors. What would you recommend that we do if we recognise some of those risk factors and suspect that a friend or colleague is at risk of suicide? Yeah, there's a, in, in the conversation, there's this um, from, uh, from 2018, Anthony John and Betty Kitchener published this wonderful article which was discussed how to ask someone you're worried about if they're thinking of suicide. It's a very interesting article because, you know, there are some myths out there in terms of, and a lot of it's based on unknowns and how comfortable people feel with this topic. But um, a lot of the research indicates that talking about one's suicidal thoughts can be a relief to a, a suicidal person. It allows them to a chance to talk about their problems and also put them in a space where they feel that somebody cares for them. And the other the point we know is that although and they sort of really highlight this is, although we know that health services play an important role in helping people who are at risk, research indicates that many people who die by suicide are not in contact with a health service in the month before their death. So in terms of the discussion, you know, what they speak about is, it's the important thing is everyone of us is likely to have a close contact with a person who is suicidal and it's important for us to get to a point where we feel comfortable about talking about these things. And they, they, they talk about a very simple a three-step process. The first being is to directly talk to someone about their suicidal thoughts and intentions, you know, using such statements as, are you having thoughts of suicide or are you thinking about killing yourself? And with the aim of hopefully asking the person about suicidal thoughts will allow them a chance to talk about their problems and show them that somebody cares. The important thing when you are asking these questions is to avoid sort of leading and judgmental ways. And, and I think this is sometimes why people are nervous about asking the question about suicide. I don't think it's really important to acknowledge, but it's a really hard thing to talk about is um, you don't, you're worried that you don't have those skills to be able to ask them. And, and their advice is, you know, don't, it's important to have questions that, talk about are you and instead of sort of saying things like you know you're not thinking about doing something stupid or you know putting judgment or so or so forth and so their second point is is it's important when you listen to a person's responses that you do it without that judgment and you, you let them talk about why they want to die and this can cause relief but don't try to convince a person that suicide is wrong or tell them that it will hurt their family if they die because 
you know, this can really shut down communication and the opportunity for the person to get support. And then the third thing that they talk about is really emphasising to the person at risk that you as an individual care and want to help them and ask them how they would like to be supported and if there's anything you can do to help. They talk about these things and it's easy for us to write these things down, but I, I have to reflect on my own career and particularly at the beginning and, and I think it's important for people the nurses and midwives who may be listening to this or family members, whoever it may be, is how comfortable you feel with this. I, I have this story. I often talk to um, the clinicians I work with that it, it it took two years before I felt comfortable with talking to people about suicide. And this can be a really, a really difficult thing for us to all talk about it. There's a lot of stigma about suicide and mental health. And also, you know, the unknown of how... And if it's a lot of anxiety, we've, what do we do with this information once we've got it? And, you know, mental health first aid is training, is a wonderful way in which one can um, get, get some development, some education, some familiarisation. And it can really help with people to, one, get the literacy, but also the comfort in working in this space. And it's that hope that, you know, similar to, you know, basics first aid with a cut or a bruise or a snake bite, that we can have just as much comfort when it comes to people's mental health and, and these problems and these obstacles we all naturally have. And so, you know, if you are feeling uncomfortable and you feel ill-prepared, I, I really encourage people to go down the path of looking at mental health first aid. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to really skill in these things and it also... It's an all, a wonderful way of helping in terms of changing the culture in your in your service setting to something that is hidden, to something that you, you can freely speak about in your organisation about. Yeah, they're really good points, John. There's lots of training around now in relation to mental health first aid. So the chances are that your organisation runs this or your professional body runs it. So have a look out for a mental health first aid course. And I almost think it would be good if the universities made it a core subject in these undergraduate degrees for health professionals. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful? Mm. And it's today I'm trying to talk about some practical one-on-one things that we can all do together, but you can't have these discussions without having a discussion on, on the cultural shift we, we have to make about mental health and the stigma and the fear that we have about it. And the more we can readily talk about it and feel comfortable about talking about it, the better it is going to be for everyone. Indeed. And a lot of work has been done in this space, I think, to try and destigmatise it and enable people to be open and honest about mental health. But it seems to me in healthcare, and particularly for nurses and midwives, that there's still an element of shame around talking about it. And I've really thought about this quite a while now and I wonder if that's because we're in the care and service of other people and so often we don't put our own needs first or we don't make them paramount or we actually think we shouldn't succumb to something like a mental health condition. Absolutely and it's this sense that look I I often I talk about it and, and I'm someone who who myself personally has gone through a space of you know working I kind of call it, you know, just sort of with my blinkers on trying to help people until a point where I recognise the impact on, of, you know, the traumatic events that I was constantly being witnessed day in, day out in terms of my work and at which point I sort of transitioned into 
sort of about therapy and uh, and getting a bit more um, insight and awareness of, of the impact of this. But the thing that I noticed in particularly my older career, and I think it will probably relate to some, is we often had this culture of a badge of honour instead of this has an impact on us. So it's, you know, you have your first death and it's, and it's this, yeah, you know, welcome to experiencing this instead of us recognising that these things often have long-lasting uh, memories and an and impact on us and things that we need to work on and understand we can't hide from or put behind us. They do have an impact on us. And, you know, this is a change in terms of, of, of what we need to do in terms of this space and, and, and talking about it and recognising, hey, you know, as a nurse and a midwife, the expectation is... It is the fact that there's a lot of stressful things one will see and witness and a lot of trauma that one will see and, and witness. And there are ways in which you can healthily continue to work in these areas as well as manage it and support it be it through supervision or therapy or whatever it may be. But it's acknowledging that we're not invincible and we can't be. Absolutely. What should a nurse or midwife do, John, if they feel suicidal? What supports are available for them? It's. I hope this doesn't sound very cliche, and it's it's, it's in the social media a lot. But it's it's really important to emphasise you are not alone, and and by that the, the statement of it is that for some, you know, having a mental illness, feeling, experiencing suicidal thoughts and, or in ideations or intent, you often, you feel alone and you feel incredibly isolated and and you often are struggling to connect to your, you know, the closest little networks or you feel that helpless that you don't. It's really important to know that there's lots of different services and it just depends on how comfortable you feel with speaking with people. So, you know, at first it's really good to be able to speak to your, your friends, your family, your colleagues, if you can. And if you can't, you know, your GP, um, you know, there's, there's psychologists out there. And, and if, if that's not a lot, if that's too much, then there's other services. You know, there's Lifeline, Beyond Blue Support Services, uh, Men's Line, Kids Helpline for those under 25, so Suicide Callback, Q Life. And as well as that, you know, nurse and midwife support is is available for people who are experiencing these thoughts. And, and we can support if, if you feel you really need that peer-to-peer based support and acknowledgement in that space. So there's do- lots of different levels, you know, worst case scenario, um, emergency support, you know, going to the hospital, all the emergency departments are, are equipped to be able to support someone who's not feeling safe. But it's just about finding something and there's lots of things out there and it's about and it's and the hardest thing often is just to make that first call or that first discussion with someone and sitting in that space if you're listening to this podcast and you feel like you're at risk of suicide or that you know a colleague who is or you think they are as john says please reach out to nurse and midwife support or any of the various services that John has spoken about. We'll put those links up onto our website as part of this podcast. Nurse and midwife support, 1-800-667-877 or via the website, nmsupport.org.au. 24-7, anonymous, confidential and free. And all our nurses and midwives who answer the phones are trained to support you in relation to this really important issue. So as John says, 
reach out to a service sooner, as soon as you can. Thanks, John. I think that's really important. John, after a person dies as a result of suicide, people experience a range of emotions, grief, guilt, post-traumatic stress disorder, sometimes anger. There, uh, there may be a big impact on people and workplaces after the suicide. What are the ways to manage this and what support is available for workplaces? Yeah, it's, it's an incredibly traumatic time and it's really important when discussing this is, is to talk sort of in two components. There's one is your individual needs as a person who's going through this, but then there's also the organisational and how management can support this. And when it comes to to a, a co-worker um, dying or, or, or even attempting suicide and, and, and it's and survives and, and you find out there there can be that as you put it those overwhelming feelings of guilt and grief but it's also it's important to note that it can also impact those within the organization that might may not even be close to that employee and so employers employers need to really consider these impacts to the overall psychological health and safety of their workplace related to this. And there's a whole range of factors and a lot of employers have processes they go through, but some of the factors are give co-workers the option of if, if it's appropriate to attend the funeral or memorial service. You know, keep watching your co-workers, workers' reactions um, and seeing how it's impacting and, and providing a, a collaborative response, be it through... Um, a grief counselling or be it through uh, having a, a group trauma or individual counselling, um, all these things, it's really important to, to work with the, the service and show that you, you, you're being reactive in terms of their needs, but also ensuring that it's appropriate to their needs at that moment of time and, and providing that help. It's really understanding a reaction can be, it, it varies significantly from employee to employee. And, and that's really important to note that people respond differently. People respond at different times. People are triggered by different things. And so we, we, have, to, we have to really consider the uniqueness of that. It's also important to recognise that it's not just the close staff or the co-workers. It also can be managers can feel huge amounts of guilt, guilt and grief related to a, a suicide death. And we need to support them as well. It's really, really, really tricky and, and it's important just to be observant of this. Providing education is a really useful um, mechanism. Improving people's ability to, to, to print, you know, um, mental health first aid is a good example that often these resources are implemented at these times, if appropriate. And then for an organisation, it's really important for us to determine if anything, if there are any workplace factors that are associated with with the death, and for us to ensure that we we're, we're open to this and we we use the mechanisms of to, that are that are there for us to really ensure that we we review these and and, and unpack these at these times. At sometimes, and I've been in an organisation where that where's had that. There's come a point where we've had a tribute that has been really healing. So there's a lot of things that you can do. It can be a very important time and it's a time that can be done really considerately and, and healthy for the organisation for something that is just, um, just an awful, awful case for all organisations that have experienced it. 
When it comes to the individual, it's an, in particularly a nurse and a midwife who naturally are focused on the care of others. It's really important to be mindful of the impact that this is having on you. It's important to give yourself permission to be healthy and take time and break in a step for reflection and healing and recovery for yourself. It's important for us to have that permission to do that. And it's important to also pace it the way you do. Just because someone is reacting some way doesn't mean you necessarily have to react that way. It's We're all individual and we all have different grief responses. And that's the uniqueness of it as well. But it's, and it's, so it's that balance between one, minimising your own grief because you want to help the service or you feel you've got a responsibility. So it's acknowledging your own needs, but also not not being concerned because you're not reacting that way because we're all incredibly individual and different and there's no right or wrong way to to go through a healing process really important points john thanks for that well we've um, come to the end of the podcast this is a very important and um, uh, complex subject that i think you know needs discussion so we've covered a lot of points today we've talked about suicide the study suicide by health professionals a retrospective mortality study in australia 2001 to 2012 the risk factors for suicide factors placing nurses and midwives at higher risk of suicide than other professionals mental health first aid impacts on others after the death of a person from suicide and the importance of nursing midwife support and indeed the other services that are available to support people at risk of suicide. John, any final words of wisdom? I, I think it's important for me to acknowledge those who have been impacted by suicide. It's so prevalent in our, our nation and I hope that some of this can be useful for others to prevent it from occurring to others. But it's important to acknowledge that there's very few people who haven't been touched by the impact of suicide in, in our, our country. And, and I just um, hope for those who are listening who can reflect on, on, on this here today that you're in my thoughts and I've always been passionate because of that. And please, if there's any feedback or anything you want to do, don't hesitate to, um, to contact us at Nurse and Midwife Support. Thanks, John. You've been a really informative guest. I know our listeners will benefit from your experience and wisdom. Speak to you next time. I'm at the Australian College of Mental Health Nurses 45th International Conference in Sydney. My guest today is Paul McNamara, Clinical Nurse Consultation Liaison Psychiatry Service, Cairns and Hinterland Hospital and Health Service, Cairns Hospital. Welcome and hello, Paul. Yeah, g'day, Matt. Thanks for getting me along. It's great to have you here today, Paul. Today we will discuss suicide and support for nurses, midwives and students at risk of suicide and following the death by suicide of a colleague. Paul, as you report in your blog on your website, Metaphor RN, which I'll get you to talk about shortly, you cite a retrospective study into suicide in Australia from 2001 to 2012 that uncovered these alarming four findings. One, female medical professionals are 128% more likely to suicide than females in other occupations. Two, female nurses and midwives are 192% more likely to suicide than females in other occupations. 
Three, male nurses and midwives are 52% more likely to suicide than males in other occupations. And four, male nurses and midwives are 196% more likely to suicide than their female colleagues. They're incredible statistics and, uh, and quite disturbing, I think, Paul. Would you please tell our listeners a bit of more about that, but also your role and Metaphor RN and why you wrote the blog about suicide, which you've titled Nurses, Midwives, Medical Practitioners, Suicide and Stigma. Sure. So um, the hospital that I work in, I've been there off and on for uh, nearly 20 years now. And back in the early 2000s, um, three of the nurses who worked there died by suicide. And that was a bit of a shock to us all. It happened in a fairly short amount of time, like about 18 months, I think it was. And it felt like a knock after a knock after a knock. And a lot of us, myself included, were standing around looking at each other, looking at our colleagues on the nursing team and think, oh, Christ, you know, what could have we done better? What could have we done different? And, um, yeah, and so that's kind of really stuck with me. And then then with my role, I, I work as a mental health nurse, in the general hospital. So um, not every day of the week, but certainly every week of, of my um, working life, I will see people who have uh, attempted to take their own lives and have survived it and been admitted medically or surgically to be patched up. While that's happening, um, I'm um, providing the, the mental health input. So I guess suicide is really just an everyday part of my working life, a bit more than I'd like sometimes, to be honest. And when it affects my colleagues, that gives it a, an even extra resonance. So it was with those thoughts bouncing around my head when I saw that that paper come out about that data. So that was published in November 2016. And it was written by a pretty impressive bunch of people. They're all doctors on the team. I think, oh, uh, sorry, that's not 100% true. I think one of them um, was a doctor PhD doctor, not a medical doctor, but the rest of them were, were medical doctors and various specialties. Um, the bits of that story that were picked up by the mainstream media were about the escalated risk to doctors of suicide, but the mainstream media didn't really pick up on the escalated risk to nurses and midwives, which was actually a bit higher than it is for female doctors. Interesting, male doctors don't kill themselves at a greater rate than fellows in other professions. So it was very much about nurses and midwives. And as we know, most nurses and midwives are females and um, yeah, the whole thing's just got a bit of a resonance for me and it, and it worries me. And I, I guess the title I gave it, it was a little bit speculative. I, I wonder whether the stigma around suicide, because we, nurses in particular, probably more than midwives, get exposed to um, suicide stuff so much, I wonder whether we stigmatise ourselves around that and that's what the blog post was, was about. Thanks, Paul. I think that's um, you make some really interesting points there. Would you tell our listeners a bit about um, Metaphor RN? Um, because people obviously want to access this blog, you know, once they listen to this podcast. And I think it's a really important blog that that is there. And so what is Metaphor RN and why did you start it? So, look, this could be the cleverest thing here today, Mark. Uh, not really. Uh, Apart from us. That's right, that's right. So, Metaphor RN, so it's uh, Meta, M-E-T-A, for the numeral four, and RN. 
And so it's a homophone. It, it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a play on words and it can be read two ways. Uh, metaphor, as in uh, using an analogy to get a point across, because a lot of education happens that way we, where we do use metaphors. And, and particularly, I think, amongst nurses and midwives, we'll be at a nursing station and be like, oh, yeah, you, you do it this way because it's a bit like. And, and we use that kind of language a lot. So we use metaphors a lot and then throw on the RN at the end because that's what I am, an RN. And then another way to break down that uh, name is is meta, which is like a, if we were having a conversation about a conversation, that would be a meta conversation. And so a lot of the stuff that I talk about on the blog is a conversation about nursing conversations. So that, that was the, where the, um, the idea for the name came from. Every now and again, I feel a bit self-conscious about it. It's a little bit wanky, but anyway. And I came about setting up that uh, blog because at the time I was working in perinatal mental health. So by definition, my, my patients were women aged somewhere between 15 and, say, 45. And that demographic had the, the best uptake of social media, the, the quickest uptake of social media, and the quickest uptake of smartphones. So this is going back 20... 2009, 2010, when I first started mucking around in that space. And so if you remember back to then, iPhones were still a pretty new idea. I think they'd been on the market in Australia for you know a year and a half, two years. And it was women in that age bracket who were buying them first and using social media with them the most. And I was saying to the, the organisation I was working for at the time is that we, perinatal mental health, we should be getting in that space where the women are. But um, it was a government organisation, bureaucracies are a little bit risk-averse and, and a little bit sluggish, and they didn't really want to act on that. So I thought, oh, well, look, I'll leave the organisation behind and, and I'll set it up and just represent myself as a nurse, not, not the organisation, and put myself on social media in that space. And initially, because I was still working in perinatal mental health, um, it had a focus around that, but um, the funding for that role disappeared. So my focus has become much broader since then. And certainly it's grown and you've got a lot of subscribers to your site and I get regular emails and information. Yeah. Yeah, so if people want to um, subscribe, they just Google Metaphor RN and they can become a subscriber to your site and get some access to some of your great information and blogs. Yeah, yeah. Look, and, and if you want to, you, it won't be too spammy. I, I, um, I've slowed down. I, I tend to write about one blog post a month nowadays. Um, and, um, and so... Yeah, so you can do that. And if you don't want to subscribe, I, 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 if you're like me, you're probably sick to death of too many emails, uh, just have a look around and see if, if there's anything of interest for you. There. Navigate it via the website. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you're an excellent speaker about the importance of nurses and midwives blogging or being active on social media. And indeed, Paul and I are at the 45th International Mental Health Nurses Conference in Sydney and have been here um, since the beginning of this week. We're recording this podcast on the 10th of October, which many of you will know is World Mental Health Day. So happy World Mental Health Day to you all, and may you um, commit to your own mental health, self-care and support. Paul, I think that's vital, and you gave a, a plenary session yesterday about nurses and social media. Could you talk a bit more about that, please? Yeah, look, the the the, uh, the session was 45 minutes long. I definitely won't give you that much information. <laughs> <laughs> um, but look, the, the short story is, and, and, I, and I used some data to back this up, so it's not just a dopey opinion. Um, 
is that we, nurses, midwives, now have access uh, to telling our stories and access to the public conversation more so than what we ever had. So I think um, maybe if we went back 10 years in time, we could be sitting around and thinking, God, isn't it frustrating that, you know, the mainstream media will be talking about nursing issues, but we'll never ask nurses to jump in and give their opinion. And that still happens now, of course. But from my point of view, I think rather than get frustrated about the mainstream media, why don't we take what control we do have and we've got access to social media and things like Twitter and blogs in particular, but also YouTube, Facebook pages, not not your personal Facebook, make it separate as a Facebook page. I find Instagram a little bit hard to use in a professional sense, but I'm playing with it. I'm probably the wrong demographic to really be good at Instagram. But anyway, they, all these social media platforms, they're, they're free to access and they give us the opportunity to get our voice out there and to join in those conversations. And so people get to hear from us whether they want to or not now. And and I think that's a really important power. And, and I think we'd be foolish just to ignore it. I'm not suggesting for a moment that each and every nurse or midwife listening to this podcast should go out and create a social media portfolio um, not that's not going to be everybody's cup of tea but there are some people who might be wondering about it and and I would encourage you to explore that space uh, Nurse Uncut the New South Wales um, uh, Australian Nurse and Midwifery Foundation a companion website is called Nurse Uncut and they've got a blog role there which includes uh, uh, some great examples of nurses and midwives who have got blogs out there so it'd be worthwhile having a look there uh, some of them are really, really good. But, uh, to be honest, many of them are much better than mine uh, by the far, by the way they look and the and the, uh, and the clarity of information that they have. But I, I reckon if you're thinking about having a go, have a go. And my only suggestion around that, my only caution around this, I'm a mental health nurse, so we're big on boundaries, um, is if you are going to do that, be really intentional about setting up a professional social media portfolio quite separate to your personal stuff. So my holiday snaps and what have you to show off to family and friends aren't under my own name. I, you, you wouldn't be able to stumble into that easily. But if you were to Google uh, Paul McNamara Mental Health Nurse or Paul McNamara Cans, you'll get bombarded with stuff that I want you to see. And I'm mindful that some of my patients, some of my colleagues, uh, some of my bosses will Google me up, usually not with sinister intent, but just out of curiosity. And I want to be in charge of what they see. And that's that's what it's all about. Thanks, Paul. I think that's really useful information. That um, is a bit outside about our key or core topic today, but I think some very useful information for nurses and midwives. Also, I would add that there's some very useful information on using social media and blogging effectively, but also in relation to your regulatory requirements on the Nursing Midwifery Board of Australia website. So if you're kind of worried about how you're presenting yourself, check those out first to make sure you're kind of considering, you know, the regulatory yeah. requirements of your registration. Yeah. And look, I, I reckon they read as fairly common sense guidelines, really. You know, like the short version is, don't be a dick and, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. Good point, Paul. 
Paul, you and I have been speaking about suicide and our concern for the profession, nurses and midwives, in relation to this since we first spoke right at the commencement of nurse and midwife support in 2017. In fact, you contacted me and raised um, your concern in relation to this issue and indeed the effect that the suicide of several colleagues at your health service had on you and other members of the team. Would you please share with our listeners um, why you think this issue is important for us to discuss in relation to nurses and midwives and indeed get out into the open. Yeah. Look, and uh, this is where I was, I was really thrilled when Nurse and Midwifery Support launched. I, I don't know, actually I'm not sure if you know, Mark, but whether it's a coincidence that that launched March 2017, that that paper I was talking about was published in November 2016. It, it's probably too short a lead time for it to be cause and effect, but the timing was great um, anyway. Yeah. Um, the advantage that nurse and midwifery support have over the employee assistance programs and um, or going off to see your GP or what have you is that it's specifically targeted to nurses and midwives and it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which reflects the shift, make, shift working nature of, of our jobs for many, many of us anyway, probably most of us. So having that great degree of flexibility is really important. Um, probably a downside is that it's all phone-based and, and for a lot of us in a time of emotional distress would really appreciate that that face-to-face contact. But look, at, as a good first step, I'm, I'm really pleased that it's there. Because I'm the mental health guy who wanders around the general hospital, I hear mixed reports about people's experience with employee assistance program. Some people have had a terrific service, but not not all. And And particularly if people are carrying concerns about stuff that they're afraid might jeopardise their employment or even their registration. Doing that via the workplace is scary. So being able to go beyond the workplace, far, far away, down the line to a telephone, to somebody on the end of the telephone, has that advantage around that. So you know, like, so if, you're, I don't know, if, if your issue included the way that you're managing your stress is that you're you know, really hitting the booze or whatever, doing something that, that might really get you judged poorly in your workplace I think it's a great advantage to have somebody far away from the workplace that you can have a yarn about that. So if you do need to go back to your workplace and discuss that part of the issue, you might be able to go back with a solution at least partially formed, not just the problem. And I think that's the great advantage. Thanks, Paul. And just to clarify for our listeners that Nurse and Midwife Support provides brief intervention counselling and referral pathways. So if you phone our service and you need face-to-face counselling, as Paul suggests, then we're able to give you some referral options so that you can access that service. But I think in the first instance, it's often really useful to phone a service like Nurse and Midwife Support, talk through the issue and get some options in terms of where you may go next. Paul, you state in your blog that suicide is a complex matter that does not lend itself to easy understanding or simple solutions. However, something we know about health professionals is that they know that there are mental health services and supports. Health professionals know that these services can be accessed by people who are feeling suicidal. The data that you you cite in the research suggests that health professionals have an actual or perceived barrier to accessing these existing supports. And you pose the question, I wonder what that barrier is. So, Paul, what is the barrier? Look, I, 
I need to really clarify that I don't know. That that's probably for another team of researchers to to go and explore. So I, I can't pretend to know for sure, but I imagine and went through conversations with colleagues. But one of the barriers is um, about embarrassment, shame. Um, I, I think I think sometimes accidentally nurses, midwives, you know, like like we we tend to be empathetic creatures, but but because we're so immersed in other people's trauma, we sometimes put up um, barriers, which sometimes in, include really um, irreverent defences, like if somebody comes a, a, in after a suicide attempt, I have heard people go like, oh, I want to do it the proper way or stuff like that. And when we say stuff like that in front of each other, it doesn't really give us permission to disclose that we're at that point or getting close to being at that point. So I think sometimes the defences that we use so we can go back to our job from day to day might actually be accidentally stigmatising um, accessing support for each other. And that that's what I was really trying to argue in that blog post is let's just be a little bit careful about how we talk about suicide, whether it's about our patients or, or you know, for vulnerable colleagues. And let's give people permission, in fact, encourage them to put up their hand and say, I need a, I need a bit of a hand with this. I'm going through a really rough spot. And, um, yeah, and I would be foolish to pretend that that alone would make the big difference, but um, surely it would help, I think, I hope. Thanks, Paul. Do you think there is a specific stressor or there are stressors indeed that prompt nurses and midwives to suicide rather than seek help? Uh, again, throw in the disclaimer, I, I won't pretend to know, but, but when you think about us, nurses and midwives, and think about our psychopathology. We're, we've probably got more empathy than the general man in the street. And, and we've been attracted to do a job which almost in essence sometimes means that we need to put the needs of others before our own needs. And anybody who's held their bladder for an eight-hour shift would recognise that while you're running around putting in catheters for other people. It's not unusual for us to put the needs of others before us. And I, and I wonder whether that's part of the reason that nurses and midwives are overrepresented in suicide data is that we're not good at putting ourselves first and our own needs first. Throwing on top of that, many of us do shift work, so being sleep-deprived leaves us all more emotionally vulnerable. Um, we get exposed to other people's trauma face-to-face, -face, and a lot of our uh, patients, of course, have physical traumas, but also those emotional traumas, and we are up close and personal with them. We're, we're the people who go behind the curtain um, and and get exposed to those really raw emotions. And for us to pretend that that's not going to have a knock-on effect would be um, a little bit foolish, I think. Thanks, Paul. On this day, World Mental Health Day, the 10th of October, we obviously place the spotlight on mental health. Do you think there is a lot of untreated mental health amongst nurses and midwives or mental illness indeed amongst nurses and midwives? Uh, yeah, we're, we're overrepresented in those, those common mental health problems, uh, depression and anxiety. There's, we're, we're more likely than our patients to experience depression and anxiety and, and I'm guessing for some of those reasons I was just talking about before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, so, so there, there, there is, yeah. 
And do you think that a more widely utilised and facilitated clinical supervision would help nurses to be more mentally well? Look, I reckon it's about the only thing that stopped me going mad. <laughs> no, I'm not 100% sure that I haven't got a bit mad. But, um, yeah, my, my clinical supervision has been such an important part of my practice. Um, in Queensland, anyway, uh, clinical supervision has been available to uh, any mental health nurse working in the public sector uh, since 2009. Interestingly, in the guidelines before that, which were implemented in 2003 in Queensland, nurses were explicitly excluded from it. And the rationale for that was a really good one, which was uh, it had cost a lot of money. But it's really important. We, we do emotional labour. We need to make sure that we look after ourselves. So clinical supervision, just for those who don't know a whole lot about it, it's a bit of a dopey name. So the analogy I use is um, I'm assuming that many of the people listening to this will have a Bachelor of Nursing or a Bachelor of Midwifery, and some of us listening to the uh, podcast might even have a Master's of. But not all that many of us will actually be Bachelors or be Masters. So the naming of things doesn't necessarily accurately reflect what's going on now. So clinical supervision was named about 100 years ago by psychotherapists, and they were saying, oh, look, I'm sitting one-on-one with this uh, person, they're um, talking through their problems with me and I really don't feel 100% confident that I'm not making mistakes with the way that I'm going. So I'm going to tap you on my sho- on the shoulder of my trusted colleague and I want to be able to discuss this case with you so you can give me some supervision and support so I don't do any harm to the patient. That's where the naming comes from. It's a bit icky for nurses and midwives. We, we've come from a fairly bullying culture so the idea of supervision sounds like scrutiny but it's not. It's very much about support and I was really thrilled to see in April this year where uh, the College of Nurses, College of Midwives and College of Mental Health Nurses here in Australia put out that joint statement saying that clinical supervision should be available to all nurses and midwives, not just mental health nurses, all nurses and midwives in Australia and they should be given that opportunity to reflect on their practice so they can care for themselves and It's not just a self-indulgent thing. Provide better care to our patients. Thanks, Paul. Um, Just to pick up that point you made, because I do hear this around the the traps when I'm talking to nurses and midwives, around the bullying culture in nursing. Uh, Can you talk a bit bit more about that? I know some of our listeners will be really interested in this. Yeah, look, I'll I'll be fair dinkum with you about this, Mark. I, I think as a bloke, I kind of have managed to stand apart from that. And, and so just on that, you know, it's a bit weird. We've got two two fellows here talking about nursing midwifery where uh, I think it's 89% of general nurses are, um, are female and, and about, I don't know, 89, uh, 99% of midwives, I think, are female. So it's weird that blokes are talking about this. And I think as a, as a fella, I reckon I've actually probably dodged most bullets around bullying, but I hear it from my colleagues. And a lot of it actually isn't, necessarily intentional it's a it's about what happens in our workplace we've got this busy stuff going on on busy wards where it's kind of crisis driven there's all there's always a crisis going on and so when something that would normally be addressed with you know empathy kindness and calmness and why don't we have a break and a cup of tea I think nursing has become of a culture where it'd be like yeah I can see you're upset but let's get on with it and I think that Emotional neglect is probably the biggest source of bullying that I am aware of, but but I know just through my gender I've got blind spots around bullying. Yeah. 
Thanks, Paul. And what do you do to look after your own mental health, apart from supervision? Yeah, well, clinical supervision is the number one. Yeah. Um, I've, uh, my, my, my wife, Stella, she's also a nurse, and uh, so we speak the same kind of language. So, um, so we kind of look after each other. We're really good at going to restaurants and going on holidays. We, we kind of make a point of doing those sorts of things to give ourselves treats. So we're um, working... Um, to get a benefit out of, out of our nursing work, a personal benefit out of it. And more recently, I've um, uh, recommitted myself to being a bad tennis player and, a, and an awful guitar player. And I bought myself a new tennis racket and a new guitar, and I'm determined to be a little less crap at both. Yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you in a band soon, Paul. <laughs> uh, just uh, one last question. Do you have a cut-through message that will support nurses and midwives to seek help who may be at risk of suicide? Yeah, look, don't, don't leave it till it's too late. And that, that's, I, I think, where almost predisposed to go like, oh, should we write, should we write, should we write? But, um, yeah, don't leave it to its crisis point would be my idea. And I, I think if you're going through a bit of a rough patch, um, don't be shy about picking up the phone to nurse and midwifery support. If you've got a decent GP who you can have a yarn to, that would be the next best port of call. And he or she can make a referral on to... Um, with any luck, a, a credentialed mental health nurse like myself or maybe a psychologist or somebody else who can provide that one-to-one emotional support. Um, yeah, and, and just prioritise your health. I'm, I'm playing a, a, a tricky little emotional blackmail thing on you now, Any, anybody listening, is, um, is even if you don't want to do it for yourself, it will be really good for your patients if you're not overwhelmed by um, depression and anxiety. So, yeah, so if, if you're a bit... Um, If you're a bit motivated by helping others, you can do that by helping yourself. Thanks, Paul. Great advice. Well, I can't believe we've got to the end of the podcast. I could talk to you all day, Paul, um, and we've had some great conversations since we met in 2017. We've talked about nurse and midwife support today, mental health, suicide, and the barriers for nurses and midwives accessing support. We've talked about stigma, the research. We provided some strategies for overcoming stigma and the elements to supporting nurses and midwives at risk of mental illness and suicide. Do you have any final words of wisdom for our listeners, Paul? Wisdom? No. (laughs) No, no. But look, good luck out out there. We we know it's a a difficult job. Um, You deserve to be cared for. Thanks, Paul. Well, thank you. If you found this podcast useful, please share it with other nurses, midwives, graduates and students and feel free to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to this podcast that'll help to elevate us and for other people to actually find our podcasts now this is important because your health matters look after yourself and each other and we'll have some information attached to this podcast that will provide you with access to paul's blog his website and indeed services that can support your health and well-being Take care and I'll speak to you next time.